Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information about our ministries, head to calvarystgeorges.org. Good morning and a happy Trinity Sunday to you. I'm always grateful for the opportunity to speak here at Calvary St. George's. Although I do have to wonder how good of a friend Jacob is for flying off to Spain and leaving it for me to explain the mind-numbing complexity of one God in three persons. Jake, if you're watching somewhere on the Camino, thank you. As one theologian put it, try to understand it and you'll lose your mind. Try to deny it and you'll lose your soul. So my question, of course, is what happens when you try to preach it? I guess we're about to find out. Trinity Sunday was not always practiced by the church. It began about a thousand years ago uh, in some churches and then was uh, officially sanctioned to be celebrated on the first Sunday after Pentecost about 700 years ago. But if you go back much earlier in church history, you might be surprised to find out that the doctrine of the Trinity did not arise easily. In fact, the first ecumenical worldwide council of the church, the Council of Nicaea in the year 325, the, the, the council that gave us the creed we will affirm together in a few moments. That council was gathered together because there were all sorts of disagreements and arguments about the nature of God. Is Jesus God? Well, if he is God, are there two gods? God in heaven and God on earth? Or did the God in heaven show up on earth and then there was no one in heaven? And what about the Holy Spirit? And if you spend any time this afternoon Googling the first few councils of the church, what you'll find is that there were lots of disagreements, lots of arguments surrounding this whole doctrine. And even in some cases, you'll find, frankly, some kind of ugly political intrigue. I mean, it was human beings who were doing this, and we're all made of the same stuff, and history does, in some ways, repeat itself. And if you go into them, you might just conclude that sometimes church history, like one of my history teachers put it, when I took history of doctrine and we were going through all of these creeds, my church history professor said, you know, sometimes church history is kind of like making sausage. You just don't want to know. Just give me the final product and leave all the rest to my ignorance. But this does raise an important question for us today. Why should we believe in something so esoteric as one God in three persons? Why something so seemingly illogical when there is so much pain in our world? Why waste our time arguing about these things? Why waste our time defending these impractical doctrines when there is so much suffering in our world? 
when Somalia is facing the worst, its worst drought in 40 years, and half the population, half the population faces an acute food shortage. When families in Uvalde, Texas, continue to mourn their losses amid the outrage of what happened there, when even here in our own city, when we were gathered together a few weeks ago, worshiping in this space, a Q train at the very same time was crossing the Manhattan Bridge, and a person was murdered for no apparent reason at all. Why waste our time talking about these esoteric doctrines when there's so much pain in the world? I so very much appreciate the poet Amanda Gorman. You might remember her from uh, the presidential inauguration. I don't know if you saw this in the Times a, a week or two ago. She posted a poem in response to what happened in Uvalde. It begins like this. Everything hurts. Our hearts are shadowed and strange. Minds made muddled and mute. We carry tragedy, terrifying and true. And yet none of it is new. We knew it as home, as horror, as heritage. Even our children cannot be children, cannot be. Everything hurts. It's a hard time to be alive, and even harder to stay that way. We're burdened to live out these days, while at the same time blessed to outlive them. What Ms. Gorman writes in this poem, I think, articulates what so many of us have felt, not just in these last few weeks, but for some time, which raises the question, why? Why then spend time on this doctrine when there is so much pain in the world? And at one level, I want to say, we do it because we believe in Jesus. We believe in what he said. We believe in what he did. We believe in what he promised. And frankly, most of what he said, most of what he did, and most of what he promised is completely beyond our expectation of what we thought God in human form would do or say were he to show up. If what he said, there are times, are there not, when you read the Gospels, you read what Jesus says and you're like, wow, that is like completely counter to the way I reason. It seems entirely illogical. And if not illogical, so many times we read what Jesus says and it's at least counterintuitive, right? The way up is down. Give up your life and you'll find it. And take this gospel, for example, that we just heard read from the gospel of St. John. Here you have Jesus speaking of himself, right? I still have many things to say to you disciples. But then he also speaks of someone else. 
when the spirit of truth comes. And he says that the spirit will take what is mine. And then, later on in the reading, there is a third other, the father. All that the father has is mine. So Jesus is not the spirit. The father is not Jesus. And the spirit is not the father. And yet all three are called God. Not gods, plural. God, singular. Now if you believe Jesus, if you affirm that he is reliable, if you are entrusting your whole life to what he says, you're going to have to make sense of his description of God. And the best minds that the church has to offer over the past two millennial, two millennia, take all of what Jesus says about God and summarizes it in this one word, God is triune. Now, I am still, I have to admit, I'm still at this point presupposing that you do believe in Jesus. And I'm confident on a day like today that there are some of you who are like, yeah, I'm not so sure that I think Jesus is a reliable source of information. And if that describes you, I am thrilled you're here. Just so honored by your presence in our midst. It's so unusual for people to go into a place where they know they're going to hear things they disagree with these days. So your very presence here honors us, and we thank you. I want to add, just to be frank, many of us struggle with the same doubts that you bring in. I was talking this morning with a friend and uh, described it as, sometimes it feels like a coin flip today. Am I going to entrust myself to what Jesus says? Well, let's see what the coin says, yes or no. Because Jesus, what he says, goes beyond what we can understand. Perhaps of greater significance, though, is that I haven't yet answered the question. Why spend time on this doctrine when there is so much pain in the world? And that's where the second lesson from today is really helpful. This one on page 6 from the epistle of St. Paul to the Romans in chapter 5. Like the text in John's gospel, the apostle Paul shows these three persons at work, working in tandem. You have justified, uh, because of our justification, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and then this love of God is poured out on us through the Holy Spirit. But did you see what else the three are doing? It shows up right in the middle of that reading. We can be tempted to think that God stands aloof from our pain and suffering. But notice right in the middle of that passage what God does. He does not stand aloof from the pain of this world, but he names it as it is suffering. Don't miss this seemingly simple point. God names the pain of this world as real and as suffering. There are philosophies and even religions in the world that view pain and suffering and deny its reality. 
that the way to make it through life is actually to deny the existence of pain, that suffering isn't real. That's not what Paul tells us. He says, no, God names it as it is. It is suffering. But that's not all. The apostle goes on to say that God leverages our suffering in this broken world to make us better people. Do you see it? Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. The pain in this world is pain indeed, but it is not pointless. God leverages the suffering of this world to bring about a better world. He leverages the He's not justifying it. He's not saying it's okay that these people do these horrible things. He's not batting an eye at it and saying, keep calm and carry on. Now, there are other texts we can look at that speak of God's justice in sometimes ferocious terms. God is not winking at injustice, but he's also preventing an error on the opposite side. On the one hand, we might be tempted to think the way we survive in this horrible world, this violent world, is just deny the reality of pain and suffering. But on the opposite side, there is a way of looking at pain and suffering and saying it's so bad that there's no hope. Did you see this op-ed this week in the USA Today? It's written by a woman. I'm sorry, I don't remember. I, I saw it, and it's not my notes, so I don't remember her name. But you can find it on your Apple News app. That's where I found it. She was, she was writing, she, she's writing about climate change. She has written about climate change, issuing warnings, concern about what is happening to our planet. But that wasn't the focus of this article. This op-ed, in this op-ed, she said, I am not a climate change denier. However, people like me who have written and talked about this stuff a lot have created an unexpected problem, which is the next generation. The next generation does not believe many, she's, this is her writing, too, far too many in the next generation have lost all hope. They believe there isn't going to be a world for them to inhabit. And if I remember right, she even wonders if some of what we're seeing some of the crimes being perpetuated by very young people are actually in some part born out of the narratives that they're reading about what's going on with our earth. And accompanying that article was a picture of a climate change rally in Italy where a teenager was holding up a sign that said, why should I study? I don't have a future. You see, now that's the other side acknowledging pain and suffering in the world, but ending up in cynicism at best. And I have to admit, that, that's a happy place for me. I, li I like to be cynical. But despair at worst. In this passage, God is saying not that either. 
The pain in this world is pain indeed, but it is not pointless. God is not justifying suffering or injustice, but he infuses it with meaning. He infuses our suffering with opportunity. He infuses it, and here's the word that Paul uses, he infuses it with hope. Hope. Hope for a better world. Hope that things will not always be this way. Now, does that feel like small potatoes to you? It kind of does, right? It kind of feels like, you know, we're having a cocktail party on the Titanic. Like, what's the point of that? Maybe it is. Friends, in the midst of our pain, even if this may seem like small comfort, I again return to Amanda Gorman's amazing poem because she points out why this extension of hope for a better world, this extension of hope of us being better people is a bigger deal than we might initially think. She writes, this alarm is how we know we must be altered, that we must differ or die, that we must triumph or try. Thus, while hate cannot be terminated, it, must, it can be transformed into a love that lets us live. What she's saying is, if we have no hope for a better world, we will devolve into cynicism and hatred and ultimately death. And she's right. Now, I do not know Ms. Gorman's faith background, but in this stanza, I find one thing, one element particularly telling. She employs the passive voice. Did you catch it? I'm like, oh, grammar on a Sunday morning. Thank you, Matthew. You're welcome. All right. I remember learning it this way, and I probably remember it because I love baseball. Right? Active voice. I hit the ball. Passive voice. The ball hit me. Right? You want one, you don't really want the other. Twice in that stanza, she uses the passive voice. She says, we must be altered. In other words, someone else must change us. Our hate can be transformed. Someone else has to transform us. And again, she's absolutely right. Someone must. And the promise of Romans 5 is that someone will. Just how committed is God to actualizing this hope for a better world? Jesus himself became a human being. He came to live as we live, to experience our every pain, to endure what we suffer. God neither denies the reality of our pain, nor does he stand aloof from it. But in the person of Jesus, he experienced it as his own. And the wonder of the gospel is that the path that St. Paul marks out for us in Romans 5, 
Suffering produces endurance, endurance, character, character, hope. This very path he lays before us is the path that our Savior himself trod. His suffering produced endurance, and his endurance produced character. And if you say, well, wait a second, can you talk about Jesus that way? That Jesus grew in terms of character? That's how I felt when I thought about this. I'm like, oh, wait a second. Is is this right? And then I remembered what the writer of Hebrews says, that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Very same point. And friends, he endured the suffering every human faces, and he endured it as himself human all the way to the cross where he, the very son of God, was trampled by the unjust systems of our world and ultimately sentenced to a violent death. The longtime rector of All Souls London, John Stott, is precisely right when he says, in view of the cross, no one can now accuse God of condoning evil or of moral indifference or injustice. God is not aloof to the pain of this world. God is not aloof to your pain. He went through it himself for you. And then, friends, on the third day, he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead to reverse the curse that we've brought upon God's good world. He rose from the dead to declare that pain and suffering and injustice will not have the final word. He rose from the dead to prove that everything he has promised will surely come to pass. And he rose from the dead to renew all things, even me, even you. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity. He says, God became a human to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better people, of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of human being. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, Lewis writes. It's like turning a horse into a winged creature. That's what God's doing with us. And in the end, what is this hope that God holds out for us? You can see it there in Romans 5. It's nothing less than sharing in the glory of this triune God. As the Spirit has already made us one with Jesus, so that right now, however you're feeling today, physically, emotionally, spiritually, however you're feeling today, because of the Spirit's work, He has made you one with Jesus, and right now, you are just as much a daughter or son of the living God as Jesus Himself is. Reality, truth, right now. As he has already done that work, so one day we will fully realize the glory we were always destined to enjoy. Or as St. Peter puts it, we will be partakers of the divine glory. Man, I wish I knew what that meant. But the most vivid articulation of it that I've seen, again, comes from Lewis in Mere Christianity, where he says, Jesus will make the... I almost ran through this line. I'm sorry. 
Jesus will make the feeblest and filthiest into a god or a goddess. A dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. This process, he says, will be long and in parts very painful. But that is what we are in for nothing less. Friends, this is the hope that keeps us going. This is the hope that keeps us from cynicism and despair. This is the hope that keeps us working for a better world. In the words of Amanda Gorman's final stanza, maybe everything hurts. Our hearts shadowed and strange. But only when everything hurts may everything change. We can deal honestly with our world as it is. We can work to relieve injustice. We can repudiate that injustice in all of its forms because Jesus will make all things new. And one day, we all will share in the glory of this triune God. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of our parish, we would really appreciate it. You can make a one-time or recurring gift by going to calvarystgeorges.org give. Thank you for your support.